Just a public service announcement before we get going. Uh, we forgot this in the announcements. The cousin of the brother of the nephew of the Queen of England has a friend whose dog will be having puppies this week, so you want to watch the television for that. So. Who likes a good mystery? Like a good mystery? Some of you like watching, reading mysteries. Some of you probably don't. Like, oh, okay. Um, I like mysteries. I hate the game Clue uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, there's no butler. Everybody knows the butler did it, so there's no butler. Um, it's, uh, I don't know, the cook in the kitchen with the mustard. Or I, I, I played it one time, and I hated the game Clue. So, um, but I do like mysteries. Now, uh, as we've gone through uh, the, the, the Bible uh, this, this year so far, for the most part, our, our readings have been understandable. When, when we come to things that have not been understandable, um, it's primarily been because we don't understand why. Right? I mean, history is, is pretty easy to understand what he's saying. There's things that when we read the scriptures, though, we say, why? Right? For example, uh, we don't know why God said you can't eat bacon. Why would you say you can't eat bacon? I mean, I don't understand that. Or uh, on a slightly more serious note, we, we look at some of the passages that we've read and we see God exterminating groups of people and say, why, God, would you do that? Right? We understand the text. We don't like the text, maybe. But we at least have understood what was being said, for the most part. There's some passages so far that have been... But now this week, we started Isaiah. And now we come to the part where we... Uh, my brain's checking out. Right? I can understand little bits and pieces as we're, as we're going through this. Uh, but, but there's some really difficult material and it's gonna be Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel. Oh wait till Ezekiel. Uh, and so, so there's some really difficult passages. We get to that 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 portion of the Old Testament that's just difficult to understand. And so we're gonna try to clear up uh, some of that a little bit, and uh, obviously we can't clear up every chapter in Isaiah. That's just that's gonna be too but we're gonna try to, to give a little bit of a reference to the book of Isaiah, because you're going to be there for about a week and a half or so. So, um, so let's turn to Isaiah chapter 2, and this is primarily what we're going to be looking at. Uh, there's there's a, a ton of great stuff in there, and there's some things that seem so obvious when we're, when we're reading it, uh, but, uh, but most of it, it's just it's very difficult. But Isaiah chapter 2 is going to be our text uh, today. And uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 22. This is the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and the nations shall flow to it. Many will say, will come and say, Come, let us go up to the, house, to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. And we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall... Go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and rebuke many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. 
Oh, house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers. They are like the Philistines. They are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. The land is full of idols, and they worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust. From the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty, the lofty looks of a man shall be humbled, and the pride of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it will be brought low upon the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all of the oaks of Bashan, upon all of the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower and every fortified wall, upon the ships of Tarshish, and upon the beautiful sloops, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the pride of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he will utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks, and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord when the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made each for himself to worship the moles and the bats to go into the clefts of the rocks to go into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Okay, I get, I get a general gist of what he's saying there. Okay. Some, some foreboding thing that's going to happen in the future, but oh, a lot of those details are difficult. I'm not going to go into every detail. We don't have time for that. Well, I'll talk a little bit about why prophecy is difficult. And there's a, a bunch of reasons why prophecy is difficult. First of all, it's designed that way, right? Um, it's designed to be, predict things because, uh, but still be understood maybe to a small group. Uh, but God didn't design it to be understood by everyone. A lot of times it was, it was there to predict uh, the fall of someone or something. So if it was easy, then the person who was supposed to fall might go, no, I'm not going to let the, that happen or whatever. Right? It, even when we read in, um, in the New Testament, Jesus says, well, it's the, this this has been made to be known to you. It's been given for you to know the things of the kingdom, but not for everybody. So, so I speak in parables. And so a lot of times these things were designed to be difficult to understand. And that's why we read them and go, I don't understand that. Now, another thing is that within, uh, within a text, it can transition very quickly between topics. And this happens in my house. Uh, where... I'm having a conversation, and I'm a slow changer in conversation. I stay on a topic. My wife doesn't. She, she's done with the topic. She moves on to the next topic, right? I'm still on the other topic. I, I'm a slow changer. And, and so after you have like a couple of exchanges where I slowly figure out that we're not talking about what we were talking about. And, and all of a sudden, some of the things that I'm saying... And the answers are weird. Like, it's like, it makes sense for a little while, and then we, okay, stop, what are we talking about? Oh, no, I'm talking about this. I'm no longer talking about that. Like, oh, okay, you've got to let me know. And we're, I, I, I don't make those changes quick. And 
sometimes the prophets, they change fairly rapidly. Like, okay, and I'm done with that, and now we're moving over here. And sometimes they'll go back and talk about that again. Um, and that's the way the scriptures are. So you kind of got to be prepared for the quick changes. Um, and we're going to see that that's actually the case in this chapter. It's also poetry. Isaiah, I was, I was reading something, I don't know Hebrew. I was reading somebody, uh, something by somebody who didn't say that. Isaiah is, in its Hebrew form, is some of the purest poetry that exists. Um, they said it is to the Hebrew what like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey is to the Greek. It, it is classic poetry. Well, when we read poetry, there are maybe exaggerations, and there are uh, personifications, and there's all these different elements in poetry. And, and so that sometimes makes it difficult, because we like to read the Bible you know, kind of like an encyclopedia sometimes, and that's not always what, what it is. Uh, it, it's not always just information, it's, it's poetry as well. And there's mysteries in the Bible. It's called a mystery. But there's some um, differences between a, a mystery and um, that, that we like, that we're used to, you know, Sherlock Holmes and all that. Uh, there's, there's differences between that and the Bible mysteries. So, now, most of mystery stories that you read or if you like to watch mystery movies or whatever, they're designed to throw you off of the scent, right? So they have information in there that's supposed to mislead you. Uh, and so the way you decipher, if, if you're really into trying to figure out who did it before they show you who did it at the end, your job to, to discover this is to filter out the misinformation and, and, and see what the real information is. And that's how you figure out a mystery story. The problem in the Bible is that all of the information is relevant. And how to figure out the Bible mystery is how to figure out how this all works into one solution. How does it all... See, because if we treat this like a, a, a murder mystery or whatever, uh, you know, it, and I read, I read the first part of Isaiah 2, and I say, oh, there's this. Now, if, if I come to a conclusion on that, and I try to put that last bit into the same topic, it's not going to work. It's gone. So we kind of have to figure out what's going on, what explanation makes everything work. That's how, a, how the Bible mystery works. And things aren't always what they seem. We are... Type of, we, we hear something and we immediately have a reaction to it. And that's just how we do it. If someone says something, how many times have we gotten in trouble hearing something and assuming a person meant something? And now we have a disagreement because I heard something and made an assumption. So we read the scriptures and we can get in a lot of trouble reading the scripture and, and, and thinking that it means something and not taking the time to to go through it and to, to figure out what's really being said. So, for example, verse 2 and verse 12. We're going to look at those very quickly because that's really where we're going to spend our time deciphering these two different concepts. It's a, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Stop. And now let's jump down to verse 12. and says, For the day of the Lord. And we look at those two phrases, and those are two very similar sounding phrases, aren't they? 
And, and especially in a religious culture that, that likes to talk about the end times and all this. And, and, uh, and we read these phrases and what do we automatically think that it's talking about? What's it talking about? Return of Christ. We actually see that neither of these verses is talking about the return of Christ. But not only that, we're going to see that verse 2 and verse 12 are not even talking about the same thing. They're talking about different events. But we like to connect things. We don't like to make those quick transitions. We also have internal problems when it comes to, to figuring out prophecy. Anything that sounds similar, we connect. We talk about that. We also like to go in chronological order. I like things in chronological order. And uh, you will notice the Bible does not care so much about chronological order. We will actually find out that verse 12 refers to an event that happens before the event mentioned in verse 2. I like things to be immediate. That's another problem with me. I like things to be immediate. I get impatient when the microwave takes a minute and 30 seconds to microwave my water for tea. <laughs> you ever find yourself doing that? Huh. All right. I mean, if you can't be patient enough to wait for a microwave, which is designed to do things faster, you've got a problem with patience, right? I like things immediate. I like, I like let's, let's have this. So I look at, uh, at various phrases, and, and I like progression. Progression, progression, let's go. Then this happened, then this happened, and I like to make that understood as immediate. This happened, then this happened. You'll read the Bible, like you'll, you'll read the Gospels, and it'll say, then after this, this happened. Or, or then shall come this. You'll find times where, where he lists an event and says, and then this shall happen, and there's 40 years between the predictions. Now, if I, if I was telling you my life story, and I said in... Uh, First grade, I, I broke my leg. True story. Then I became the preacher of Waukesha. You go, you missed something, right? Then doesn't, <laughs> that's not how we like to hear the story, right? Now maybe my story would be good because it's not really that all exciting, but, but we like kind of some fill in the gaps in the story, but the Bible doesn't always do that. The Bible can jump and they say, then this happened and it can jump. A bunch. But I like things. Boom, boom, boom. The last problem I have when I read the scriptures is that I like things to be about me. And so do you. If you look at photographs, you look for yourself. You can look through a complete stranger's photos and you'll be expecting to find yourself in a photo. We look for ourselves in photos. You know that, because you're flipping through someone's photos and there you are in a photo. Like, I was looking at somebody's photos. I didn't remember even being there and I saw a picture of myself. I was there. Right? You just do that. You look for yourself. And we read the Bible and, and we want to find ourselves. Well, that's good because we're in there, in a manner of speaking, but not in everything. And so people, we read this and, hey, I'm alive now. And so when I read something about the last days or the latter days, I want to make it about me. Because, hey, we're the last thing that happened, aren't we? And I want this to be about me. There's a problem. Let's talk about, first of all, we're going to, I said that the, 
verse 12 and verse 2 are talking about different events. And so because I like to go chronologically, I'm going to go chronologically. So we're going to go to verse 12. Then we're going to back up to verse 2. Okay? And we get this phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now that sounds pretty, that sounds pretty easy to figure out what that means. I mean, the day of the Lord. This verse certainly sounds like the end of the world, especially when you read some of the stuff he's talking about, shaking the world, and, and some of these pictures. Remember my tendencies. It's about me. It's about my time. The problem here is that the, this phrase appears 31 times in your Bible. And it only three times in the Bible, all in the New Testament, in Corinthians 2 Corinthians, first, 2 Corinthians, and then once in 1 Peter, does it talk about the end of the world? It typically refers to the fall of Jerusalem, the first fall of Jerusalem, which they're about to experience within a hundred years of the Isaiah. It refers sometimes to the second fall of Jerusalem. It also appears uh, to refer to the fall of You're sensing a trend here. Uh, The fall of Egypt, Tyre and Sidon, Libya, Ethiopia, Babylon. There is one. I I know typically we we go through just a text. I do want to skip a little bit because there's an interesting interesting phrase in Amos. He gives a a general reference in Amos chapter 5. We're going to go back to Isaiah, but... I want to jump to Amos because Amos has a a general concept he gives concerning the day of the Lord. And in chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Whoa, (laughs) that's that's kind of buttonwork me. As I was looking through all these different references, what do these mean, the day of the Lord? Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who fled from a lion and the bear met him. (laughs) Or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand against the wall, and a snake bit him. Is it not the day of the Lord, darkness and not light? It is not very dark with no brightness in it. We think, ah, the day of the Lord. Who wants the day of the Lord to come? I do. No, you don't. No, you don't. Go through and look up the 31 references to the day of the Lord and you'll find not one happy day among them. They are all about destruction and punishment and judgment. The day of the Lord is not something to go, I can't wait for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, yes, there will be people who escape judgment. The Bible says that we escape barely. We will all go through judgment, and it will not be a pleasant experience for anybody, Christian or otherwise. We will escape. The Bible says, kind of like escaping a house on fire, you'll get out of it. Not a pleasant experience. We get excited about the day of the Lord. He says, don't. The context here, specifically in Isaiah, is talking about the fall of Jerusalem, the day of the Lord, the day when God comes to punish. And shortly after that, he says, there will be another day of the Lord when God punishes Babylon. That will happen seven years later. 
and so on and so forth. So now if that's the case, if that's what Isaiah is talking about, what in the world does that have to do with me? Because I said we're in here somewhere, and these things were meant for me in a, in a way to be applied to me. And we don't want to ever leave church and have a sermon that never applied to me and say, hey, here's this, what this means. Well, that, what good is that? So we want to talk about something that applies to us. And that's in verse 2. He says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established in the top of the mountains, will be exalted above the hills, and the nations shall flow to it. And, and we're going to look at some other aspects of this passage a little bit. You ever hear um, someone go, got some good news and bad news? Which one do you pick first? Well, don't we always go, I want bad news first, because I want bad news, then I want to finish on good news. And Isaiah does it backwards. He kind of was of the mind of, I'm going to give you the good news first, and that might soften the blow for the bad news that I'm about to give you. So he gives the good news. He's like, keep this in the back of your mind. There's some good news. Because when we read verse 2 through 4, that's really happy sounding. And I know that they're talking about something different, because then from, from, from after that, it's all about something else. And it all sounds pretty negative. It all sounds about punishment and running and fleeing and hiding and all that. And this is the good news. So, so he's like... Keep some good news in the back of your mind, people. Because I'm about to tell you the bad news. The bad news is what's shortly going to happen. Less than 100 years from when Isaiah prophesied this, there's going to be some bad things that start to happen. But there's some good news. Because after that, there's going to be some really nice things that happen. Keep that in the back of your mind. Well, this must be the end of the world. This is what he's talking about. The end of the world, when everything's wonderful. Because, how do we know that? Well, I can read. And it says, Nation will not lift up their hand against the other nations. They won't learn war. Well, we don't live that. No one's lived in this time period where, where nations didn't fight against each other. I mean, all we have is fighting, it seems like. Right? So it can't possibly be talking about anything now. It must be in the future. I want you to hold on to verse 4. We're going to come back to verse 4 because there's some other statements in this that tell us that it, it can't be talking about the future. References that are obvious and, and references that are referred to in your New Testament. It shall come to pass in the latter days. With latter means later. They just added an extra T. I don't know why. The later days. In other words, here's this event that I'm going to tell you about. But in the later days, after that, in these days that are after that event, something's going to happen. The Lord's house will be established on the top of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. And all nations will flow to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us His ways. And we shall walk in His paths, for out of Zion will go forth the law and the word from Jerusalem. This is not talking about the end of the world. 
And, and I know that verse 4 is a little confusing. So, so let's just hold on to verse 4 for just a second. Let's establish what is a little bit easier. He's talking about the establishment of the church. Where God established his church in Jerusalem, Zion. And the word spread beginning in Jerusalem to all peoples. Remember that, that the Hebrew faith is not really evangelistic. It wasn't like a, a message sent to everybody. So, so this was a, a new thing. For Isaiah to say this was like, whoa, we're, we're going to... That's kind of a dramatic shift from what they were used to. It was going to go to all people. It was such a non-Hebrew thing for them to, to be evangelistic that even after the church was established, they still stayed in Jerusalem. The apostles. The apostles who had been told to go into all the world, preach and make disciples, stayed in Jerusalem. Until they started getting persecuted. Actually, they still stayed there and everybody else took off preaching as they went. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 8. They're preaching as they went. And, and, and even then as they went, who did they preach to? They preached to Jews. You see how difficult it was for them to preach to all nations. And when finally someone did decide to preach to someone who wasn't a Jew, they had to have a big conference about it. And figure out if that was really okay. And Isaiah is telling this way beforehand. He says, this is what's supposed to happen in the future. You're supposed to go to the people that you don't want to. Good news. And you're supposed to tell all the people that you don't want to about Christ. The good news. The gospel. The gospel was for everybody and that is good news. So what about this verse 4 with the peace stuff? Because people didn't suddenly become peaceful. I said that, uh, that we look at things and we like things immediate. We like things to happen. And so when I read a thing, I want it to happen in my time frame. And that's not how it works. This is a process. He's referring to a process. And certainly the world is not utopia yet. This is poetry. And he's referring to a concept. Now I guarantee you, if you could go into a time machine, pull somebody back from you pick a place, and bring them to the world we live in, this would be peace. This would be peace. I uh, lived overseas and talked about showing pictures to people. So I'm showing pictures of my apartment and they're going, you don't have a fence in front of your yard. And you don't have bars on your windows. No, I never really thought about it. Your front door has glass in the window. That's kind of stupid. Because in a world where they've not been taught about Christ that much for 80 years, 
there's not a lot of peace. But what you will find in history is where the gospel goes, there is a process of peace that happens. That's not utopia. It's a process. And throughout history, where people have accepted Christ, it's gotten better. And they stop learning war. People don't always think about fighting. Once that message gets in on an individual level. And so as we conclude here, I want to make this relevant to us as we leave. First of all, I have some bad news. There is a judgment coming. And no one will avoid it. It won't be pleasant. Hebrews tells us that the judgment begins. The judgment will begin with the household of faith. We don't skip it. It starts with us. And if we scarcely escape it, how much worse for those who haven't accepted the gospel. We barely escape it. The Bible says by the skin of our teeth, actually. By the skin of my teeth. I will escape. I will know, and you will know, and everyone who goes into heaven will know absolutely when we go in those gates that we do not deserve to be there. That's what the judgment will be for. There will be two books opened. One will be the book of what I've done. And the second is the Lamb's Book of Life, the Bible says. That book will be opened. And I will say, yes, but. That's a yes, but book. Yes, but. And I only get through it barely. That's the bad news. But there's good news. There's good news. It doesn't matter what your past is. It is irrelevant if I'm in that second book. What I've done. What I've said, what I've thought. I can be declared innocent at the end of the trial. There's a judgment. But I can be acquitted. That's the good news. And an encouragement as we close. To be a part of the peace process. Be a part of that process that brings peace to other people. Because it's the gospel that makes lives better. Because in the world around us, there is no utopia yet. I think every one of us could probably, in our own life, tell the story of how things are better now than the way they were. 
You've all experienced this verse. You've all experienced beating swords into plowshares. You've all experienced that if you have accepted the gospel. You've all experienced how life can become better through this message. And so the message for us is that there's somebody out there in my world whose life needs to be better. And I can go, hmm, but I don't want to talk to that person. And God said to the apostles, I don't care if you want to talk to that person. You're apparently not leaving Jerusalem, so I'm going to give you a little kick out the door. Have some fun staying in Jerusalem if you want. Or you can go and speak to people. It's my job to be a part of the peace process and help somebody else put down the sword. I can't keep what I've been given. We're going to close.